Well, good morning. Um, that was a sermon in of itself. Wow. Okay. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Esther. Um, we got this scripture today. If we can throw that. Um, and uh, I don't, I don't want to preach this scripture. Um, I'm I'm scared. I'm I'm scared that you'll think I'm just trying to coerce you into complimenting me more. <laughs> I'm scared you'll think I'm trying to get you to pay me more. I'm scared you'll think I'm trying to get you to be more gracious with me, and I'm especially scared that you'll become overly critical of me after we <laughs> delve into this scripture. So there's just a bit of raw honesty for you to begin today. But here's the deal. I'm going to confidently preach this scripture by the grace of God, because it is God's word. God put it in there, so it's valuable and helpful to us today. And I'm going to confidently preach this scripture by the grace of God because the more I've thought about it, I've had a front row seat to this scripture's application for 14 years in full-time ministry. So if nothing else, I know what not to do from my mistakes. So uh, the backdrop for this is actually in 1 Timothy 5. So if you'll open up the scriptures with me to 1 Timothy 5, we'll start in verses 1 and 2. And those two verses really encapsulate what the rest of the chapter is all about. And it's all about treating people like family. And so 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2 says, Don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters with all purity. This is the lens that we need to view people in every sphere of our life. And last week we saw how to treat people like family at home in verses 3 to 16. And today we're seeing how to treat people like family at church in verses 17 to 25. And next week we'll see how to treat people like family at work in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. But a helpful hint for treating people like family is just to imagine you were them. If you're interacting with someone who's older than you, think, man, how would I want to be treated by a younger person? And, and if you're interacting with some, someone who's younger than you, think, how would I want to be treated by an older person? But the thing that fuels us is the fact that God treats us like family. And he doesn't just treat us like family. If you've repented of your sin and believed in him, he treats you. He doesn't just treat you. He makes, has made you. You are his son or his daughter. And so if God treats us with that level of dignity, should we not treat each other with the same level of dignity as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers? So that leads us to today's scripture. So let's read verses 17 to 25 together and learn how to treat people like family at church. Verse 17, and, and by the way, just my personal preference, um, the reason I don't put the scripture on the screen for you, um, and others who preach here do, and that's great. That's the, like, I'm not, that's awesome. Um, I don't because I really want you to see God's word in front of you so that you can see it in front of you throughout the week. 
I want you to get in a habit of opening up a Bible app or a real Bible, uh, not a real Bible, it's the real Bible on your phone. You know what I'm saying. Um, to open up the Bible for yourself and to be in God's word yourself and not just see it on a screen and kind of sit back and be a spectator. I want you in it with me. So I'll put maybe other references so you don't have to flip all over the place, but that's why I do that. Okay, 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 25. The elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Publicly rebuke those who sin, so that the rest will be afraid. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. Don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder. Don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. And some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. The first thing I want you to see here, and we see it in verse 17 to 18, is that we need to treat church leaders like family by honoring and supporting them. So again, verse 17, 25, the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. So it's talking about elders. These are the primary shepherds and leaders of a church. He gave qualifications for them in chapter 3. And he says here, honor and support them. And you can do that by encouraging them. Now, the elders here at Stonebridge and elders at any church carry a heavy weight of responsibility to shepherd and lead God's people. And our elders here, Dave Niebel and Randy Shaver and Kevin Lambert and Tim Ellis and I, are called into discouraging, tense, stressful situations often. And only former elders understand the weight that I'm talking about. So go out of your way to encourage them. When you see them leading well, tell them. Ask them how you can be praying for them. And then do it. Do it on the spot even. So encouraging. Honor and support elders. And these verses say especially to honor and support preachers and teachers. Why? Because they're bringing God's word. Those, it says, who work hard at preaching and teaching. So we saw in 1 Timothy 3.15 that the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. So if the truth is not handled with great care and great reverence, people will start believing lies and be led astray. In 1 Timothy 4.1, we saw that some people will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. So if the preaching and teaching of God's word isn't handled carefully, we could easily, as a whole church family, just be led down a destructive, demonic even, path. 
But I'm grateful that our church values the preaching and teaching of God's word enough to free someone up to give their undivided attention and time to it regularly. It's not something I or others who preach take lightly. And being the primary person who preaches and teaches here, I want to give you some unique insight on how to honor and support those who preach and teach. And I'm not doing this to fish for a compliment. I simply know better than almost everyone here why this is in God's word. So when someone faithfully and powerfully brings God's word, don't merely tell them good job. Okay, we live in a culture that's very nice. Okay, so people generally say good job even if you didn't do a good job. I mean, just straight up, they do. Say, why was it helpful? What was good about it? Then you know it's actually a compliment, right? We have to push past kind of the superficiality of things if we're really going to encourage people. And this is true not just to preachers and teachers of of anyone. Anytime you're trying to encourage people, be specific. It goes a long ways. And do it, I would say, when people are preaching and teaching, Give them positive feedback if they do a good job. Do it that day. The sooner the better. Silence is deafening. I'd rather have someone come up and tell me I did a bad job than hear nothing, quite honestly. Like, anyway, I don't need to keep going on and on about that. But support preachers and teachers. Encourage them. But support preachers and teachers financially, it says in here as well. So verse 18 He's quoting from Deuteronomy 25.4 that says, Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. And we hear that and we go, so Matt's an ox? Like, what, what are they talking about? Um, but it was, it was um, an agrarian reference and an agrarian culture. So ox were led um, to trample sheaves of grain to separate the grain uh, from the chaff or from the straw. So they didn't obviously didn't have modern technology to do that for them. So it's just saying, hey, don't keep an ox muzzled. You know, if you keep a mox, an ox muzzled while it's doing it, it can't eat the grain as well. So it's saying, hey, when people are preaching and teaching, you know, support them, even financially, so that they're able to continue to do that unhindered. And then he quotes Jesus. Jesus, when he was sending out his disciples to do ministry in Luke 10, 7, says the worker is worthy of his wages. So he's actually encouraging his disciples to accept food and lodging and support from those he's, they, they minister to. So God in the Old Testament, Jesus, and now Paul encouraged financial support of preachers. And I'm grateful and I'm humbled that we do that here at Stonebridge Church. Next, we see we need to treat church leaders like family by giving them the benefit of the doubt. 1 Timothy 5.19, don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Now here we see this, this verse is actually rooted in the Old Testament. So if you, if you look back, Deuteronomy 17.6 and 19.15 say essentially the same thing as 1 Timothy 5.19. It says you need to have more than one witness if someone's bringing an accusation. Jesus quotes from those Deuteronomy passages in John 8, 16 to 18, and calls for the same thing. There needs to be more than one witness. So here, again, we see that Paul is not just saying, 
you should probably give the benefit of the doubt to elders. That's a good idea. No, he's saying this is essential because people will try to accuse and come at church leaders. And in this context, especially Timothy, where he was a pastor in Ephesus at a time where we, we know from this book there was a bunch of false teachers Undoubtedly, they were falsely trying to accuse Timothy and other elders, leaders that he appointed all the time within the church. So just so you know, cancel culture isn't a new thing. It was happening 2,000 years ago as well. And so people would try to come at them. So he's like, no, 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 give them the benefit of the doubt. You need to have more than one witness. Now, unfortunately, even in God's family, people wrongfully accuse elders, pastors, and leaders. And it happens more than I ever thought before I became a pastor. And I've definitely made the mistake of just believing the first person that comes along as well. And it could have saved me and, quite honestly, our church some trouble if I would have heeded this verse and given the benefit of the doubt. I want to treat church leaders like family. And we need to treat church leaders like family by giving them the benefit of the doubt. Don't be so quick to accuse and point your finger just because one person said so. That one person, where did they hear it from? Is this true? You need to verify these things. People love to talk. People love to say things that are maybe not true. All right, third Treat church leaders like family by holding them accountable. So then he flips almost. Verse 20, publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. Paul is now addressing what to do if the accusations are verified by two or more witnesses. He says publicly rebuke them. So is this saying that if an elder sins once and it's verified by other people, you should publicly rebuke them? Well, sometimes, yes. If that one sin affected a bunch of people, if they murdered someone, if they abused someone, yeah, that should happen. But ordinarily, as the ESV says, it says publicly rebuke those who persist in sin. So it would be more like if they, they, they have a pattern of sin that they're just not dealing with and are unrepentant of. They're, they're struggling with it, but they just don't care and they're doing nothing to address it in their lives and they're not changing, then yeah, you should probably publicly rebuke them. Why do that though? It seems so harsh. It says, so rest will be afraid. So you do this to discourage other church leaders from taking sin lightly in their lives. So yes, Jesus forgives us of all of our sin. But remember, sin is the reason Jesus went to the cross. Sin is that serious and terrible and heinous, so we should not treat it lightly, especially for leaders. So holding church leaders accountable must happen when they're persisting in sin. It's, It's loving that church leader really well. Even though it's tough love, it's loving them well. And it's loving the rest of the church family well by ensuring that God, that godly shepherds are in the church and we have godly examples. So several years back, we had a church leader here that we had publicly admit 
a persistent sin pattern. If you were here, you know what I'm talking about. And this isn't like, oh, I'm gossiping. No, this was a public thing that happened. Okay? And we took some leadership responsibilities away from this person for a season. And we put things in place to try to help them grow. We didn't just say, hey, we're going to publicly rebuke you. You No, no, no. We tried to really help them out. And that was not comfortable for anyone. But it was the best and most loving thing we could do. So now, in verse 21, he shifts a little bit. And now he's, he's addressing church leaders. And he's saying, hey, church leaders, you need to treat your church family like family. And the first way is by not playing favorites. Verse 21 says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. So let me first address the weird thing in this verse. Elect angels. Who are they? What, what is that? So commentator Yarborough, I can't read, Robert Yarborough says the elect angels are those who serve God in contradistinction to those who fell. They are associated with Christ's return and the final judgment. So he used some big words. Here's what he's saying. Elect angels means they're simply not demons. Okay, They're not angels who fell. Um, and I'm not going to go into that and, and those passages today. But he's saying, his point here is that all the heavenly beings, God, Jesus, the heavenly angels. What Paul is saying is that what he's saying here has incredible authority and weight. The whole weight of heaven here. So he says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice. Doing nothing out of favoritism. So as hard as it will be to do all the things that Paul just commanded in chapter 5 verses 1 to 20 he says you must do all of those things without playing favorites Timothy Timothy you and other leaders will naturally want to help some people more than others and you'll naturally want to be more lenient with some people than others based off of your preferences but you must not let your personal bias interfere now if you we're in a family growing up or are in a family that has multiple kids or you have multiple kids as a parent, you, you know this really well, okay? So inconsist- inconsistencies in treating your kids are sniffed out by those kids immediately, right? If I treat one of my kids different than my other kid, they're going to call me on that in a second. They just, they see through that. And so Paul's saying something similar. He's like, in a church family, you know, if you're going to lead this family, you have to treat everyone as best as possible without playing favorites because they're going to know it and they're going to despise you for it if you do. So praise God here. And he calls us to not play favorites. Now, one time, um, as elders here at Stonebridge, we needed to talk with a church leader here who was deliberately living in persistent sin. And there was going to be some consequences if they didn't repent and turn around. But before we did that, as elders, we took a good hard look and just said, are we being consistent? Like, 
we're pointing this out in this leader, and we should hold leaders to standards. I mean, it's all over this passage, right? But are we doing that with our other leaders as well in the same area? And we were like, yeah, I think we are. Um, and I'm really glad we, we kind of did that check before we went and talked to them. And it actually went really well. They, they listened and repented in that instance. Um, and I, if we would have been inconsistent, I don't think they would have listened at all. But we had been consistent in how we were dealing with leaders and the standards we had. Next, we see that church leaders, you need to treat church family like family by being picky about leaders. Verse 22, don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder and don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So if you're not picky about leaders, the whole church suffers. And sometimes the whole church suffers massively and regrettably. I have multiple stories of times that I was way too quick to appoint leaders. I'll share one from my previous church. So I was a youth pastor, and um, I had a youth leader, um, or someone who became a youth leader. They came up to me after church service, and they were like, hey, I, Matt, I hear you need youth leaders, and I would be a great one. That should have tipped me off to begin with. That, rather arrogant. But um, I hear you need youth leaders. I'd be great at it. And I knew that she wouldn't be for multiple reasons. I knew this person pretty well, um, but I caved and just said, okay. You know? <laughs> the youth in her small group were not cared for well. Um, often this youth leader was rather codependent on them. Um, and it wasn't healthy and it wasn't good. And those youth were not supported. And so through a process, finally asked her to step down, but she should, never should have been there to begin with, because I should have been more picky about who I had in leadership. Now, I'm, I'm grateful for our picky process for becoming an elder here at Stonebridge Church, which I wanted to just outline for you. So we talk as current elders, and we, we discuss um, different candidates, and we go, okay, does this person meet the qualifications in Scripture, in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1? And then if they do, we go, okay, are they currently shepherding people at Stonebridge Church? Maybe they're leading a Bible study. Maybe they're leading a connection group. Maybe they're leading a ministry within our church. But they're, they're actively caring for people within our church and leading people in our church. Because we, we have to show that they can actually lead before we just say, hey, lead the whole thing. And then we go through an elder training process. If they, are, if they do meet those qualifications and they are leading within our church well, um, we do some elder training, going through an elder booklet. And then if they get through that and everyone's still feeling good, the, the candidate and his wife are interviewed by the current elders and their wives. And then they're voted on by the members. And I'm grateful for that process. It saves our church a lot of heartache. We're developing more processes. Actually, in the moment, you can pray for us to become more picky about other levels of leadership as well. But why be so picky? Verse 22 says, if you're not, and you put people that are not ready to lead in leadership, you're actually sharing in their sins. So if they fail, 
to lead well. If I appoint someone to lead and they fail to lead well, that's on me. That's what this is saying. I am sharing in their sins. Now, let me, let me help you understand this a little bit because I know this is kind of countercultural. So my kids attend Boone Public Schools. And if the principals and leadership of Boone Public Schools aren't picky and have high standards for their teachers, my kids' education will suffer. And you better believe I'll be in the principal's office or superintendent's office talking to them. But if the principals and the leaders are picky and do have high standards for teachers, then my kids thrive. And I will be the biggest encouragement and support for the principals and the superintendent and the leadership all around. And by the way, we've had a great experience with our teachers and principals and superintendent, all of that in Boone Public Schools so far. So praise Jesus for that. But the same is true for church leadership. Many people get this ridiculous notion that because the church's message is grace and forgiveness, that it's not gracious and consistent with our message to hold leaders to standards. And that's just baloney. The most loving thing we can do for our church family is to hold church leaders to high standards because they're representing God to us and to our community. They're representing Jesus to us and our community. We need to be picky about leaders. Third, we see that church leaders need to treat church family like family by taking care of themselves. 1 Timothy 5.23, don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illness. Now this verse, it, it almost seems out of place, but it's a beautiful little evidence of the reliability of Scripture if you think about it. Paul actually knew Timothy really well, including his physical health struggles. This wasn't a letter that was made up or tampered with later. This actually came from a real person named Paul and a real person named Timothy who were close friends and knew each other's strengths and weaknesses and illnesses and all of this stuff. But Paul knew Timothy, and he knew that he had frequent stomach problems, so he recommended a common medical cure-all, a little wine. Now remember, they didn't have any Pepto-Bismol at Walmart, okay? They didn't didn't have modern medicine. So this isn't like some like, oh, go get sloshed at the bar, Timothy. No, no, no. That's not what's happening. He said that that this was actually used, uh, a little wine, to help people with stomach problems. So he's saying, hey, take care of yourself, Timothy. Take care of yourself. You're saying, I, Paul was saying, hey, I know the stresses and weight of ministry, and I know you're feeling them, and you've got to take care of yourself. Or, and if you don't, you won't be able to take care of anyone else. So if you're a church leader, you must take care of yourself, or you'll be of no use to the people that you're trying to shepherd and lead. See, the best thing I can do for you all, I've learned, is go for a run every day. I'm, I'm a much more patient dad, I'm a much more caring husband, and I'm a much more wise and gracious pastor when I run. So that is, that's what I do to take care of myself, amongst other things. So if you're a church leader, take care of yourself. And if you're not a church leader, 
make sure leaders over you are. Ask them how they're taking care of themselves. Ask them how they're resting. Now, the last two verses I find a lot of comfort in. So, 1 Timothy 5, 24 and 25. Some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. He's saying, essentially, rest in the sovereignty of God. I love this exhale here in the last couple verses. It's been pretty tense, right? These verses are pretty pointed and straightforward. And now he kind of relaxes a little bit and goes, hey, even if these weighty standards for, for church leaders, even, even if like sometimes people look 100% ready for church leadership, but it turns out they're hiding things and they weren't ready, it'll show up. And sometimes people who don't look 100% ready for church leadership are. But that will show itself too. So breathe and rest in the sovereignty of God. God knows that it's impossible to select leaders perfectly. And only God can see people's true hearts. And there is grace for that. So God is sovereignly in control over all church leadership. And he will make up for even the best or worst church leaders' mistakes. So church leaders, if you lead in any capacity here at Stonebridge, you can sleep well at night because God has got his church family taken care of. He is sovereign. And church members, you can sleep well at night too because God will take care of his church family. Rest in the sovereignty of God over his church. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are so in control. And you have high standards here. And you have very specific instructions for us as a church family. But we thank you that at the end of the day, all things will show themselves. And you'll take care of it. You, you are ultimately in control. We are not. Jesus, you are the head of the church. And so we submit to you, and we trust you, and we love that you are the head of this church and of every church. So Jesus, thank you for that. And I just pray as we worship now, we would just find a lot of rest and joy in your sovereign care for us, Jesus. pray this in your name. Amen. Will you guys stand and keep worshiping with us?